0: welcome back to the minimum effective dose podcast i am one of your co-hosts and my name is mike perry and i'm here with brett jones brett what's going on these days my friend how you doing bud just busy trying to keep all the plates spinning um and the
1: hours of meticulous research and thought that went into today's podcast has been keeping me very, very 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 busy
0: yeah, so you know what? I don't even want to talk about how many weeks <laughs> I've been spending on on this topic. Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna tell you what the topic is actually. Um, and and it and it comes to to do with coaching. And I don't have a fancy like actual topic like subject line yet. I, we're just gonna talk about coaching, but it's gonna be. As coaches, we have the opportunity to work with people of various skill levels. And if you've ever worked with athletes and particularly younger athletes, middle school, high school, uh, you get an eclectic mix of individuals with various levels of athleticism, coordination, um, skill, uh, and you name it. And, you know, I've I've always felt like if you can uh, make a positive impact on a, a younger athlete that maybe isn't the most coordinated or uh, athletic individual and you can, you know, get them to the point where they can, you know, be a little bit more aware of their body and just understand how to move and, and maybe somewhat familiarize themselves with their own body. I think that's uh, very, very impactful. And, and those are the ones that need the coaching, right? It's, it's not the, the genetically gifted people and, and, and those people tend to have it a little bit easier, but I think what we, we really forget about is, is, um, Who really needs coaching? And it's usually the people that don't have the skill set or the knowledge to do something on their own. And that's the point of hiring a coach. And, um, and, and that's really what we're going to be talking about. But, uh, I think we're going to start with, um, you know, working with that, that individual that maybe isn't the most athletically gifted person. And, uh, you know, how do we start? How do we work with those people? So, so Brett, I mean, you've been doing this longer than I have, um, you know, as far as coaching goes, um, you know, you have worked with very, very high level individuals. Um, you know, those are the, the individuals that we, we refer to as never couldn't, (laughs) um, you know, you tell them to do something and if they can't do it right away, they're going to do it way faster than you probably ever thought you could do it. Um, and, uh, they're a little bit easier to work with, but it's those ones that maybe, I don't want to say never could, but man, it makes it Movement for them is a challenge.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I, for me, it starts right away with uh, doing something like a movement screen and setting a baseline for how the person moves. Um, you can you can you can start picking up on some genetically gifted movers uh, as you start going through something like a movement screen, uh, and you can pick up on people that are going to be a little bit of a challenge. Um, you know, if you say. Take the dowel and place it on top of your head with your elbows at ninety degrees, and they've got it pointing front to back rather than side to side. Um, or you say lift your right leg, they lift their left. Um, you know, you start picking up on some things that okay, there's there's a little different interpretation of uh, of this movement happening. I need to provide a little bit more clarity. I need to work with this individual. Uh, and when you start picking up on the idea that somebody's going to struggle a little bit from a, a, a movement standpoint, patience don't, you know, it's not wrong. It's, Hey, you know, that, that was in, in you know, like if you're doing the hurdle step and you say, okay, step over the strength, your right leg, and they use their left, just make a note of that in your head and go ahead and score the left hurdle step. Yeah, yeah, exactly. you, you don't need to say anything. Right. Uh, then tell them to do it with the other side. Um, don't say, well, "Well, now you can do it the way I told you to." Yeah. Um, you know, don't be a jerk. Um, I don't know about anybody else on the podcast, you or anybody listening, but uh, I don't enjoy being made to feel like I missed something or you know that I was you know wrong or whatever. So that's when you start breaking out your patience. Uh, you know you're probably going to have to explain things um, a a little bit see if they do better with a demo so if you start using verbal explanations and it's just kind of not coming across quite 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 right go with a go with a demonstration hey i want you to step over with this leg and come on back um, and see if that doesn't start uh, really cleaning things up because um, you know there are kinesthetic movers there are visual learners and and you know, the learning category thing, uh, some people really, they grab hold of that a little too strongly. We are all a mix of kinesthetic, visual, and, uh, and processing sor- sort of learning um, uh, strategies. It, it's a mix. It's not one, um, although somebody may be, um, I, I'm really good visually. If I can see somebody do something, there's a, there's a chance I'm going to be able to replicate it pretty quickly. Um, chance. Not, not that it's always going to happen, but there's a chance. Uh, when people send me written descriptions, I, I actually kind of really struggle with with written descriptions. And it's why I think from a writing standpoint, I'm actually really good at doing written descriptions of exercises because I've got to put it in a way that I can understand what I'm asking the person to do. And I struggle with with written descriptions. So I, I think that that's, that's the entry point for me where we start to really look at who who do we have in front of us and wh- how are they moving, how are they processing
0: the information, and then I can run with it from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think you're right. You know, the movement screen, um, yes, we are trying to capture information from those seven patterns, but um, if you really um, kind of step back and take a little bit, you know, just, I don't want to say deeper look, but just, you know, if you kind of step back and not focus just on movement, just, but focus on their overall, um, you know, their overall presence and what they look like when they move around. Um, you know, you can tell a lot about people, even just watching them get up and down off the ground. I mean, there's, there's, if you're really paying attention, I mean, you know, not to get too in depth, but like one of the things that I've always, I always pay attention to is when someone walks through the door, are they shuffling side to side when they walk or are they walking sort of, Forward and back and smoothly because you know what? I mean, watching someone walk is a movement screen, and and I don't have the data to prove it, but I will say this: the people that are walking with an actual, you know, hip extension and flexion and it looks rhythmic and there's a little bit of body turn versus people that shuffle side to side and they look like a statue. Um, you know, there's there's some stuff going on there, right? I mean, if if your lack of movement is that apparent and gait, then uh, I'm not saying that your movement screen is going to be bad, but I mean, it's, it's usually not indication if you, your, your method of, you know, your method of walking around is a side to side shuffle versus a, you know, walk And, and, and to be honest, I can, I can really tell a lot by, by how someone walks. And, and, uh, also it's interesting when I have some clients that I've worked with for a very long time, I can like watching them walk in, I can tell if they're tired I can tell if you know they something's bothering them because I know all of their little you know their little quirks. But I mean, when, when you've worked with clients for ten, twelve, fourteen years, you kind you know their you know their baseline, right? And you can tell you can even tell like oh man, you were up late last night. Yeah, I, you know, I had to work or something like that. So the movement screen is yes, it's part of the you know I mean the FMS we have those seven different movements, but paying attention to everything else. Within that session, how they walk, how they get up and down off the ground, you know, all of those, what are their strategies to do that? Because you can see if they're competent in like a deep squat, but also you can see like, how do they initiate the movement, there's a lot of other things going on and, and don't hear what I'm not saying, this is not going to change the way you would score an FMS. It's more about just paying a little bit more attention to sort of the big picture within the session. And, um, you know, it, you know, if we're being honest, we're always kind of movement screening We're all, if you're a coach um, and uh, if you're like me who can't turn it off, I'm constantly looking at how people walk, how they run. I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things, but um, it's important to understand how to look at movement to see, you know, what's, what's, you know, what's acceptable, what's, you know, optimal and, and, and what is, uh, I don't want to say dysfunctional cause that's not a, a great word to be using, but I think it's important to have that sort of baseline and just to pay attention to yes, their movement patterns, but I would say their, the fluidity within their transitions, I think is something to pay a, a huge attention to. Definitely. Um, one more uh, 30,000 foot view thing
1: as you start to work with people and you, you maybe start to identify somebody as a never-couldn't skilled mover, things come easily versus somebody for whom learning movement skills that related things has been a challenge. The person that never couldn't may not be that open to coaching because they've had so little of it, right? So they are... You you correct them on something they're like whoa hang on this is new usually whenever I do something somebody just says well wow that's really good and we move on to the next thing so that that person that never couldn't might be a more challenging coaching situation from that standpoint of them accepting coaching the person that has had some struggles uh, in learning movement um, you know that person uh, there's going to be a lot of confidence things. That we need to work through um you're you're really going to want to avoid uh any like any negativity like uh you know you you want to keep that coaching in the positive you know hey that that was that was really good let's just see if we can tune up this one little thing and uh boy you know really really nice effort there compliment sandwich make sure that you're keeping things nice and positive because the that person that has struggled They're actually their their kickback on you is it couldn't have been good. I I've never done anything right in my life so and movement wise so it couldn't have been good. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe what you're telling me. So you know sometimes you actually have to video and say, look, (laughs) it's really good. You did it. (laughs) You did it. Like a little and and that sort of building that confidence off the start will help you from a coaching standpoint with that person. That's going to be a little bit more of a challenge. Um, and you know, there are things I, I am okay at swinging Indian clubs, uh, at this point, I've had a few years of practice in, and I still, I still see myself on video and go, Oh God, Jones, come on. Just what, how how did you miss that? Like, uh, you need to sharpen this up. Um, but boy, working with Dr. Thomas initially and learning how to swing Indian clubs, um, (laughs) I wish I had video. Um and we would get to the point in sessions where he would be trying to keep helping me try to learn like something like the front hand lead in movement number 3 and um and he would kind of be th- kind of thinking of how else he could say this to me to help me get it and I would have to stop him and go doc I got it. I don't got it right now, but I got it. Like it's going to happen. Just it's give me a happen. chance to practice. Yeah. And I think as a coach, that's one of the other things to to think about. Um, When you start into a session with somebody and the first time you've worked with them and it's their first five kettlebell swings of the day, don't pounce. Maybe let them get into the second set before you really start making a, a judgment on their swing. They could have been nervous. They could have been tired. They may not have been warmed up quite enough. Like the second set might look really different. Yeah, And so as coaches, we have a tendency to pounce, you know, the first rep is off and you're you're jumping on the person trying to give them something to fix. Hang on. Let's, let's get one or two, maybe a third set in. Let's see what happens when we grease the wheels a little bit and uh, and then maybe the real issue will, will reveal itself. Knowing that we've already taken the movement issues off the table with the screen. Anyway, that was just a quick aside to. uh,
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think, I think too is, is when we work with individuals that are, you know, veering in skill, you know, I always go back to, I always think about, um, you know, the greatest opportunity to make an impact. And, uh, look, it's great working with high level athletes and uh, you can absolutely as a strength and conditioning coach have an enormous impact on naturally gifted athletes that have been you know, that have put in the work that have been fortunate enough to make it to the highest level. And, and, and I've been very lucky to be able to train people from, you know, high schoolish and, and watch them sort of thrive and grow all the way up into professional athletes. And, you know, that's, that's few and far between, but, um, you know, I, I, I gotta tell you some of the greatest sort of stories and moments I've had in coaching is when I was able to help, um, younger non-athletic kids have those aha moments. And, uh, you know, I remember there was a, there was a young kid that was uh, training at our gym for the longest time. Really, really nice kid. Um, Not super, super athletic, but just a sweet, sweet, nice kid that always tried really, really hard. And man, for the longest time, we couldn't get this kid to skip. And uh, eventually it sort of happened one day and like the whole gym just like exploded. And they were like, yes, you did it. You skipped. And it was like, yes, it was kind of funny and it was lighthearted, but like, it was so cool to see this kid and you should have seen this kid. He was you would have thought he just won MVP of the Super Bowl, man. He just learned how to skip and but that's how important it is, right? That's how important um understanding your clients because you know, you get a a naturally athletic athletically gifted kid, you know, and both parents were like, you know, D1 athletes. Like skipping is like it's like walking. It's not even it's not even a challenge, but you get someone else that You know, maybe neither of their parents did any type of sports, and and therefore, because they didn't do a lot of sports, maybe as kids they didn't have a lot of play. And when you don't have a lot of play, you don't have a lot of exposure to different movements and different sports and different skills and different environments. And those those because of the lack of games and whatnot, um, you don't have experience catching, throwing, and just just moving your body in space. And well, guess what happens to those kids? They, they tend not to like movement because it was hard for them. And then down the road, it gets even harder because they didn't have the opportunity to develop those skills as a young kid, because maybe they just didn't have the opportunity to get exposed. And and that's the hard part. But, you know, down the road, maybe when they're at that point, maybe it's in middle school or high school where they decided, yeah, I need to do something athletically. That is where a coach can make a huge impact. And that is where a skilled coach has to use their toolboxes or their tools in their toolbox rather to get you know this individual starting to move um, you know as optimally as possible because um, that can be a challenge when you work with someone that really has never done anything. But if you have the patience and the skill set and the the knowledge to progress them over time, you can literally change their life.
1: Absolutely. One thing I want to throw in here, and uh, in particular with kids who might struggle with uh, ball uh, sports, any sort of ball-related sport, whether that's um, football, softball, baseball, basketball, anything throwing, catching stuff like that, you might have a visual issue. They they it's when you, when you lack convergence and you have some visual some visual issues, it's really surprising when the ball shows up. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you haven't been able to, to track it visually, kind and not. so <laughs> yeah, exactly by the time you see it, it's like oh crap. Yeah. Um. So know that when you're in one of those situations where you know somebody's struggling within one of those sports, now the visual issue can also show up uh, in other sports where you're tracking. You know, other players in the field. This was one of the things that made uh, somebody like John Elway so amazing his peripheral vision was so wide and his ability to see the field in one instance and know where the players were going and where they were going to be made him such an, one one of the reasons he was such an amazing quarterback. And when you see an amazing quarterback in the NFL in particular, uh, you see it in basketball as well. It's that player that just seems to know what's happening everywhere on the court and they know where to put the ball and where people are going to be. Their anticipation is really good. Sometimes there are some visual issues and, and things like that that get in. Sometimes it's tactics, but sometimes it can be uh, visual issues that get involved there. So for for some of these kids that struggle a little bit um, <clears throat> with with especially ball sports, keep in mind that you you might want to talk to the parents and just see, hey, as when was the last eye exam and did the doc check for like, you know, convergence and kind of eye eye movement stuff. Yeah.
0: No, no, I, again, there's, there's multiple factors. And and I think, you know, with Brett bringing that up, um, you know, look, kids are going to develop at different rates and they're going to acquire skill at different rates. and, And yes, absolutely. A lot of that is genetic. Um, and, and, and I think what Brett's really saying is, hey, look, if, if you see that there's there's coordination issues or, you know, throwing and catching and they don't ever seem to improve, there there could be some other stuff going on. Right. And, and, and that's that's where you have to like, you know, go go see an optometrist and see what's going on there. Or, um, again, it's just a lot of the times it's just stepping back and looking at the big picture. And if you see something that is not improving. Like you have to almost step back and go like, what else could it be? Could it be this or this or this, or, you know, because um, depending on the situation, it could be a, a, you know, a bazillion different things, but um, you know um, it's just important to understand that, you know, as a coach, sometimes we have to step back a little bit and go, Hmm, maybe this is out of my scope and maybe they need the the expertise of another professional in which if I can just recognize that something is off and then try to direct this person in the right direction with the right professional uh, I think that's um that's absolutely fantastic because um you never know who you can help with just stepping back and going something's not right and I need another set of eyes and that's a beautiful thing because it's it's and talk with the parents and talk
1: with the parents hey you know I've, I've noticed you know little Susie or little Billy is maybe having a little trouble picking up on a couple of things is any anything in the past like um how was how was crawling how was you know when, when, you know, you don't want to go too far down the developmental rabbit hole and start going, well, when did they walk? Uh, but a couple of leading questions as far as you, you know, how, how was crawling? How was all this stuff and uh, you know, what sports or what have they done in the past and, you know, things, things like that, um, can, can, can help you uh, pick up on a, on a few things as well. So, um, but yeah, from the, from the coaching, so we've kind of laid out this 30,000 foot view of all of these things that uh, could be involved in getting started with somebody, Um, you know, once the rubber hits the road and it's time to coach, um, Mike, how do you balance a room where you've got, you know, three to five gifted athletes and 10 that
0: are, that need some extra reps in order to, uh, to, to get the, uh, the drill? Well, you know, I think it depends on the environment. So if I'm working with a like a lacrosse team or if I'm working with a group of athletes, I think it's going to really depend, um, you know, a deadlift is a deadlift. So if it's a weight room and we've got a, a new group of kids, um, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to ask them early, hey, who's done what? And uh, regardless, anytime we introduce new things, especially if it's like week one, um, we spend a lot more time teaching and we preface the sessions with, hey, look, it's week one. We're going to spend a lot of time going over the the basics. We're going to spend a lot of time teaching. And explain to them, hey, normally we would do you know four by five on our deadlifts, but because we're spending a lot more extra time today, you may only get two by five or three by five on this. So um I, I think the big thing is just really um, you know, focusing on uh teaching the basics, showing the entire room, the basics of it, and then uh then you're coaching. And then what I try to do is if I have a group of kids and i'm trying to teach them the deadlift that's the only thing i'm going to teach them for that 20 or 30 minutes right just the basics and is it going to be perfect on day one with 10 or 12 kids no it's not going to be perfect it needs to be safe and effective uh for day one that's it doesn't need to be perfect and you know listen these kids are hopefully resilient enough that if their back moves a little bit in their deadlift you know their spine's not going to explode because if 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 that's the case then they have other they have other issues but you know for me I, i think of it as a workshop anytime i have a movement like that that is you know is pretty, um, pretty challenging. Um, I will absolutely uh, break it down and spend a little bit more time and almost teach it like a workshop. Uh, it just, for me, that seems to help. Um, and, and I'll give them a bunch of different types of cues, you know, for, for some people, Uh, I'll have them touch their butt to the wall to to feel the hinge. Um, For others, I'll use the the flashlight cue that I use when I'm teaching people how to hinge. Um, I'll try to give them, you know, I'll show them, I'll talk about a vertical leap. So what I'm trying to do is I'm actually, when I'm cueing, I'm giving them a visual, I'm giving them all these different types of internal, external types of cues. Hopefully one of those will stick and that's going to be the one that's going to make you know, sort of the main difference, but um, in situations like that, that's how we do it. And then we just have to keep on coaching and coaching and coaching and coaching. And that's really what it's all about to the point where all you have to do is go over and go thumbs up and, and go from there. But, you know, here's the scoop with coaching. Coaching is very, uh, most coaches front load at the beginning. And, and what I mean by that is the first few months are the hardest as a coach because that is where we have to rewrite new sort of motor programs. That is where we have to sort of kind of clean things up. And, or if we're not cleaning things up, we're just educating people on how to do things a certain way. But at first, for the first three months, man, you're just, you're just trying to get them to do the basics really, really well. And then, you know, after that, it's, it's more about load management and decision-making and, and making slight, you know, tweaks in their form or their technique. But Um, you know, a big part of it is just exposure and reps. And that's why it's so important to just be consistent, especially early on. I mean, I'd rather see someone come to the gym three days a week and, and just get exposure to movements and get practice than worry about having one killer workout.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. As a coach, your progressions and regressions, making sure that you can take somebody a step or two back or a step or two forward uh, on the fly and do the right thing for the individual. I think from a, especially a group coaching standpoint um one of the worst things that's ever been said is well everybody watch watch uh susie do this she does it perfectly and then everybody else in the room gets to feel bad because they yeah. don't do it like uh, susie does um so you know be be careful with your uh examples um mm-hmm. you know be sharp with your cueing and make sure that everybody knows that who and i, I this is struggle with exactly how to say this but make sure the person to whom you want to get the cue knows that that cue is for them yeah and that the person next to them knows the cue is not for them <laughs> yeah i've seen a lot of people in certifications and workshops who end up getting a little screwed up because well i heard this coach say this so i figured i'd try it i'm like well who were they working with when when you heard them give the cue because the cue was probably for that individual because I'll go around the room and you know, teaching the swing, for example, there's people that I will say, do not bend your knees and they will bend the knees the right amount. And then the net person next to that I'm saying, I would like you to squat during your swing, and then the swing looks perfect. Yeah. Now, if the person that that is that doesn't bend their knees, that I have to tell them not to bend their knees, and then they bend the knees the right amount, uh, if they enact the squat cue. Well, their kettlebell is probably going to hit the ground, and they're probably going to have a horrible experience. So make sure the person you're giving the cue to knows that that's who the cue is going to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I uh, I, I got to get back to doing this, and I used to do it more often when I was working with groups. I would say we're going to have two different types of cues. We're going to have general and individual. General queuing is going to be good for 85, 80 to 85% of the people. If you just do these three cues, you're going to be good. And then individual, that's what you're talking about. I need you to bend your knees more or bend your knees less, or I need you to fold more or fold less. It's exactly that. So, um, and, and that's like, I always say when, again, I said, that's your cue. That's that's th- this is a cue, but this is your cue, and and there's a difference. Like this is the one that you need. So that's a great point to make sure that people understand that you know who the queuing's for. Because I've 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 been there too. I've, I've heard you know, people say, "Well, like, I I heard so and so say this." Like someone will ask me, it'll be like, "You know, I, I heard a, a another SFG stru- instructor say this." What do you think? I'm like, I don't understand the context. Like I don't know the context of what you're saying. So it it could be right, it could be wrong. I don't know. So I. Show me the person, show me the environment, so show me the situation, then I could give you context. But like for me to just say that's right or wrong, it's, it's unfair because I I don't have any more information on that. But shit, that's what everybody does on the internet. So I might as well do it anyways.
1: <laughs> oh, the internet. Um internet, the interwebs, YouTube and uh yeah, YouTube university and and everything. Um, you know, I and I think from a from a coach's standpoint, uh, the instructor or the, the coach's standpoint. You know, you need to develop your coach's eye. Um, You know, I, um, when I wrestled in high school, I was injured a good bit uh, through my uh, kind of soft, well, through my formative high school years and didn't really wrestle all that much. Uh, But I actually ended up almost being like an assistant coach. Um, I could, I could watch, I I knew what the coach had said (laughs) and what he wanted. And then I could look around the room and I knew who needed a little, you know, a little tip on how to how to make it happen. And, um, you know, as an athletic trainer and somebody that was teaching taping and exercise techniques from a from uh, and and pretty intense, you know, we did a lot of PNF and a lot of uh, fairly intense hands on uh, sort of rehabilitation techniques. And um, so, you know, my my ability to see what was happening and to and to pick the thing that needed to change uh, that it started being developed back in high school. Yeah. And so, you know, fast forward 20 plus years into being a kettlebell instructor and, and, uh, I'm okay at looking at what somebody's doing and, and being able to spot a potential uh, area of opportunity or something that needs to change. Um, if, if you, um, as a coach, maybe struggle to see certain things happening, um, you, you need a mentor, you need to see a lot more bodies going through the movements, uh, so that you can pick up on things. And, um, so develop your coach's eye, you, you want to be able to look and, you know, I, I, work with a lot of different individuals and there's things, there's times where I'm like, okay, do you see this happening? And the person's like, no. And then you, you got to break, you got to be able to break it down and bring it to their awareness because if they're not aware of it or they can't see it, it's going to be really hard for them to coach it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, to kind of change gears a little bit, um, please, please we we've got the genetically gifted athletes um and we've talked about this a little bit they're the ones that never couldn't um you know those are the ones that pick the right parents right we always kind of joke about that but a lot of the times you know like like for me man i'm a i'm a 43 year old bald 5 foot 9 guy like i'm not going to be in the nba ever like it's just not going to happen so you know if you want to be six, five, you got to pick the right parents. And and obviously we don't have the, uh, the opportunity to do so, but I mean, you, you kind of see it, right. You see how genes play a role. And uh, you know, you look at um, some of the athletes and, and the families of athletes out there, you look at like, obviously being a Patriots guy, Rob Gronkowski and his whole entire family, all of his brothers were in the NFL. Like, don't tell me that genetics don't play a role. All these guys were monsters. Or you look at like, and the world of lacrosse um, the curse brothers and the Kavanaugh brothers, like they're, these are like families of, 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 you know, obviously they, you know, they passed and they learned the sport from their, you know, brothers and parents, but look, you gotta be a good athlete to play at the highest level. I don't care who you are. And that's that uh, that's absolutely picking the right parents. But um, there, there are some challenges for a lot of kids that have those, that have those genetics and maybe you're bigger and stronger and faster and develop quicker because those are the individuals that um, may get complacent. And those are the ones that may have a tough time down the road when the hard workers and, and, and maybe the kids that weren't so genetically gifted, but they were really, really just adamant about putting the work in and they start to catch the genetically gifted guys. That is, and, and usually happens around puberty, right? Because puberty is a great equalizer. But um, that is where, for those genetically gifted kids, when they see all of these other kids busting their ass and catching them, and they haven't really had to work hard at all to be successful, that can be tough because at a certain point, People are going to pass those genetically gifted individuals that don't put the work in. And it's that's that whole qu- quote, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. It's it's that whole idea. But um, that can be tough for a lot of kids because y- you see, it's like there were studs and they peaked at like seventh grade. And I literally I remember when I was playing soccer and when I was in like seventh or eighth grade, I just started getting OK at soccer. I wasn't great. And there were a bunch of kids that are on the higher teams than me. And I was like kind of pissed. And, uh, but I remember those kids just kind of stopping playing or they didn't put the work in and they just weren't that good. And then I wasn't, I was decently gifted, but I had to put a lot of work in to, to make that next step. And, um, you know, it, it, it can be hard. It can be hard for those people because, um, when they never couldn't, uh, there's going to be a point where there's going to be people that are just as gifted, just as gifted as them but they put the work in and that's a lot of the times where you see people just say they hang it up or they quit because that that's a shot to the ego being the best for a very very long time and all of a sudden you're not that's a shot to the ego so that's that's something that i i um you know i think we need to consider because it's it's a big part of it for sure and um some kids need to be coached through that. They need to be supported through that. And you're thinking, Mike, we have to support the studs. We have to support the athletes that, you know, like a lot of times they'll be like, oh, that person's a waste of talent or that kid's just lazy. Well, maybe that's part of it, but maybe this is the first time in their life where they've had to struggle and they don't have the tools to deal with it. There's, that happens. And you would think, well, he's just a stud. His family, you know, his families were stud athletes. They'll figure it out. But it doesn't mean the kid's not struggling. 100%.
1: It's uh, doing the right thing for the person in front of you. Thank you for stealing my cliche from the first time we tried to r- record this. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, you can look at examples of obviously talented individuals uh, who were also incredibly hard workers and kept themselves at the top of the game uh, for very long periods of time. Um, Kobe Bryant was was kind of very famous uh, for his work ethic and. Um, Jordan put the work in um, um, there's 50 other athletes that are buzzing around in my brain uh, NFL wise that, uh, that, that were just known for being the first ones to show up the last ones to leave um, putting the extra work in. And um, so, yeah, hard, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. So guiding people through that transition and making sure that they, um, they, they put the work in. Um, yeah. Yeah. It'd be great if everything was always easy. Um, I I don't know the last time I experienced that. <laughs> yeah. So you gotta you gotta put the work in. And, yeah, you uh, gotta
0: put, you gotta put the work in, yeah. and 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 you know, failure is one of the best teachers ever. Um, yeah. And and it's it's, success success I, for a lot you. of people is not a teacher. Success for a lot of young, athletically gifted, never couldn't success is a given. Like it's just we've always won type thing. And, uh, you know, I played on a lot of clubs that we always lost and you learned a lot about losing and it's nice to be on a team when you win, but, um, I don't want to say that, 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 you know, when you win a lot, it breeds a certain amount of comfort, but, um, if you hate losing, I hate losing, I'm a sore, sore loser. So for me, I, I absolutely hate losing. And, um, I, I, I hate it with a passion. I don't care if I don't care who it is. I just, I, don't, I hate it. I'm, I'm very, very competitive.
1: Well, I gotta go Ted Lasso for just a second and uh you know be a goldfish. Yeah, it's it's uh and I, I think that's easy to misinterpret because the the initial message behind that is be a goldfish. Okay, you made a mistake, be a goldfish, forget about it, and move on. But the the deeper layer under there is um, and, and I'm gonna go a couple of different directions on this. We uh attaching meaning to things um, is dangerous and we want to avoid, uh, attaching meaning to things, but we don't want to miss meaning there. There are times where there is a lesson to be learned. So in that process of having made a mistake, there's probably something that you can learn from that mistake, from that failure. Um, and then you want to let it go, learn the lesson yeah. and then let it go. Cause if you keep viewing yourself through that failure lens, well, that's a self-fulfilling, uh, prophecy. Um, and you golfers are probably, um, the, the story has been told, uh, in rims of either golf or basketball. And it, it's the player that, uh, has missed, you know, 15, three pointers during the game. And who wants the ball to make the 30 pointer to win the game? The person that's missed 15 mm-hmm. because they have confidence that they're going to step up and pull it off. Yeah. It's the golfer that's on the tee. And they might have snapped it left uh, off of the last tee. And they still got a tee off on the next uh, the next tee. So yeah. they still got to step up and, and try to hit one. And if they're holding on to having snapped one left, they're probably going to block it right. <laughs> and now the real fun begins. But if you can be a goldfish, if you can if you can take the lesson, then forget about the mistake and move forward with confidence. Yeah, that's that's a that's a coaching lesson that if you can get people, you know, through that stage, um, you'll you'll have made a big difference with folks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think the confidence is a huge part of it. And and I would say, you know, to kind of put a bow in this whole conversation, I think um you know, when we're looking at developing athletes, I think we need to really look at every component of that individual. Um, obviously the physical aspects of a strength and conditioning coach, we look at movement, right? We look at uh, load management and all that other stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think when it comes to being a coach, if you really, really care, um, you're going to, you're going to know what makes that athlete tick and you're going to know when to you know, when to, when to pump them up and when to cool them down, when to talk them off a ledge, when to say the right thing, or we'll hopefully say the right thing. But, you know, I think for me, coaching is not just, uh, about drilling. It's about having the opportunity to impact someone and and whatever that vehicle is, whether it's weightlifting or, or, or sports or whatever, it's just simply a vehicle to, to help an individual. And, um, that's what coaching is all about, because look, we, we coach because we want to help and we want to impact. Um, I don't I haven't yet to find anybody that said one of the reasons why I want to be a coach is so I can make millions and millions of dollars. It's just simply not that. I mean, (laughs) look, someone wants to, you know, sponsor our podcast. uh, That'd be fantastic. But um, but we coach because we care and we know that we can make an impact and uh, we love it. And uh, that's a that's a big reason why we coach. And and I would say this. Look, um, all athletes need coaches. uh, And but most of the times it's going to be for very, very different reasons. You know, sometimes it's that unathletic kid that just needs uh, exposure and he needs someone to believe in them. And sometimes it's that uh, super, super athletic kid that, um, you know, maybe uh, has to dial things down a little bit and refocus and and uh, maybe they need to just slow down and maybe they need to focus on other aspects like the IQ of the game or, you know, the mental preparation or nutrition. There's always aspects to focus on. and uh, And I think as a coach, what we need to do is try to figure out how we can help and do our best to support those athletes through their careers or through our relationships with them. So, um, yeah, that, that's coaching in a nutshell. And, uh, you know, we all need coaches for sure. And, um, yeah, anything, uh, any, any wise words you want to leave us with Mr. Jones, Con that, Crow's positive, that, that positive impact. That's Um, it. I,
1: I think that, um, you know, the, the there's a, um, scene in the third season of Ted Lasso, where the, the writer, uh, Trent Krim, uh, is very excited because he's like, it's going to work. <laughs> and Ted's like, what do you mean? It's like a thousand imperceptible little things that you've done over the last few years are going to, it's all coming together. Like you, you want to be that person that, um, you know, dr- drives a, a positive, um, situation and that positive impact will, uh, you know, coaches have a, an opportunity to influence hundreds and then, those hundreds will influence hundreds, uh, and so it is. It is a, a an honor and an opportunity uh, to be to be a coach and to be somebody that can pass on um, the the knowledge, the information, and the the positive message.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're gonna we're gonna leave it at that. Thank you for that, Brett. Appreciate it. Um, As always, thank you so much to our listeners. This has been the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed this, do us a huge favor and leave us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to. And we will see you all on the next episode. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.